Today, I have the privilege of returning to the rich book of Zechariah. It's been a while since we last visited this text, so it's good for us to remember that as we return to Zechariah, that we are in the middle of eight revelational visions that Zechariah is seeing and giving to the people of God. And the purpose of these visions, once more, is not to give us a point-by-point detailed plan of what God is going to do, but it is to paint for us a powerful, impressionistic painting of reality as God sees it here today. And so in learning to see the world the way that God does in these visions, adopt his perspective in all of these things. This, of course, requires humility on all of our ends because none of us are naturally inclined toward giving up our own way of looking at things and to adopt another person's perspective. But when we humble ourselves before God and we learn to see reality as he sees it in these visions, we find hope. We find hope in him and his glorious purposes here on earth. So far, we've learned from vision one that we are to hope in the reality that God is sovereign overall. He's sovereign no matter how bad our current situation may seem. The second vision that we've covered also reminds us that he will avenge his people. He is not indifferent to the pains that his people have gone through, but he will one day avenge them. The third vision then gave the certain hope that God would restore his people and he would certainly return to them. The fourth and fifth visions then are then meant to capture what is most crucial to the people of God. It captures what they are to hope in and look to. And this message of hope was also directed then to Israel's two leaders, Joshua and Zerubbabel. This is what we covered last time with vision four, focusing us on Joshua and the redemption from sin that God would bring through his Messiah, the branch. Vision five then here today is directed to the other leader. It's directed to Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was a governor. He was one of the main people in charge of leading God's people to build the temple and to look over them. And he needed immense encouragement and help because he had many obstacles in his way. So how was Zerubbabel then to do this? How was he to go about this monumental task? This vision answers that question. When God's people are empty and they feel like they are drowning under the waves of hardship, what is it that was to keep them going. When they faced the impossible task of rebuilding the temple and their city, what was it that they were to focus on and depend upon? And the same question can be asked for each and every one of us here this morning as well. What is it that keeps you going as a Christian day by day? What empowers you? The main answer comes in this mid- the middle of the vision in verse 6, where God says, Not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. When faced with severe discouragement, 
hardships, and seemingly impossible tasks given to us by God, the answer is to not depend upon our own strength or the might of this world, but the answer is to depend on God's Spirit. So if you take nothing else away today, grab a hold of this main point as we move through a somewhat complicated text here this morning. So we come then to vision five, which contains many cryptic and mysterious elements. This is perhaps why in verse one, Zechariah is awakened by an angel like a person out of a deep sleep. The angel, as it seems, recognizes the difficulty of this vision that he's about to see. And so he kind of shakes him awake and gets his attention. After all, Zechariah has probably experienced what we would call information overload. He's seen a ton of visions, and now he's just like zoning out. Like it's a lot to take in. And as you've probably experienced when you receive a ton of information, all at once, you zone out. And so the angel here, in doing this for Zechariah and for us, is really calling us to wake up, pay attention, don't give up in focusing on this. So grab a cup of coffee, he might say, and and listen up. And we will definitely need that as we walk through this text. After alerting Zechariah, the angel asks them then, what do you see? I replied, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top. The lampstand also has seven lamps at the top with seven spouts for each of the lamps. There are also two olive trees beside it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. Now, I'm guessing you're having a hard time imagining this in your head right now. And so, while there's debate and disagreement as to what this exactly looked like, it may have looked something like this. The big question, however, is what do these things mean, right? Like, what's with the bowl at the top? What's with the lamp and the seven lamps? What do the olive trees represent? We have all sorts of questions, but no answers. Thankfully, we're not alone. Because as we continue reading, Zechariah has no idea what these things mean either. What are these, my Lord? Don't you know what they are, the angel responds? No, I have no idea at all. And at this point, we are right there with Zechariah. We too are wanting to know answers because like him, we got none. And so the angel gives us an answer to this vision. But the answer that the angel gives isn't exactly what we expect. He says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. That's how he responds. What is this vision about? This is what it's about. Now, if you're like me, you're probably wondering, what in the world does this statement have to do with this vision? Like, that didn't help me at all. I'm not seeing the the dots. I'm not connecting them. Because it seems like has nothing to do with it. However, as we examine this vision more closely and understand it, I think it has everything to do with what is said here. I believe that the statement the angel is stating for Zerubbabel is highlighting the central point, the main meaning of this vision, which he does not want us to miss, which we can easily do 
if we get caught up on the minor things. So what is the central meaning of this vision? Once more, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit. And so what God wants to make clear to his people and to Zerubbabel as their leader is that it would be through his spirit that his people would prosper and advance in the work that he's given them to do. And once more, that is what this vision is primarily capturing and what we must not miss this morning. So make this statement the model for your life. Get it as a bumper sticker or a picture if it helps you to remember it. Some of you might be even tempted to tattoo it onto your body. But this is the model that our church must make for itself. For the way that we will advance in this world, it's not through strength. It's not through my or accumulated power or wealth, but ultimately from God himself as we depend on him. Now we may wonder, okay, this is, this is the central meaning, but I am still not seeing how this vision connects to this truth. While the Israelites would have had an easier time understanding the symbolic meaning, uh, we as Westerners in our culture, in our context, uh, we're, we're far removed from that and we need some help. But as we come to understand the background on Israel's culture and context, we find at least two clear connections to this vision. First, the oil in the picture that keeps the lamp lit is representative of God's empowering spirit. When we look at the Old Testament, we often see a close connection between oil and God's spirit. This was especially true when the kings of Israel were anointed. For instance, in 1 Samuel 16, 13, when David is anointed with oil, what happens? God's spirit comes powerfully upon him and empowers him for the work given to him as king. And he prospers and he flourishes. And so the imagery of oil here reminded them and all of us here the need for God's empowering spirit. For without it, we are lost and ruined just as it happened to King Saul when God's spirit left him. If the oil then symbolized God's spirit, then the lampstand symbolized the people of God and the temple that he was building through them. Just as this lamp was dependent on the oil to keep it burning, so the people of God were to be dependent on his spirit. And if they failed to depend on his spirit, their flame would certainly go out. They would not glorify God as they were to do, nor would they finish the temple that God had given them to build. So by connecting this vision to the central meaning of the text, God is emphasizing at least these two points. Zerubbabel, if you are going to complete the temple that you are currently building, it must happen as you depend on my spirit. And if you are going to be a holy people, a holy nation, a light on a lampstand burning brightly with my glory, it will again only come as you depend on my spirit. What is being said here would have gone against the grain of what the Jews wanted and what they expected. 
Because what the Israelites wanted here in this moment was strength and might. They wanted a temple like Solomon's, which was a temple built with strength, with might, a temple born out of a position of prominence and authority in the ancient world. But God calls them here and us to abandon such ways of thinking. And he instead desires that his people would glorify him and accomplish his purposes, not by seeking power or might in this world, but by relinquishing it and depending on his spirit instead. This message is, of course, radically countercultural if we are taking what he's saying here seriously. Because our world that we live in here today is all about gaining strength and might. It's about grasping for power and influence in every area of life possible. Just look at our political realm. And we, the church, can easily, easily get sucked into the same mindset when we wrongly believe that the only way we can make a difference in this world is by grasping for power, influence, and position. Interestingly enough, this is exactly the same mindset that Jesus' disciples were wrestling with. They wanted strength, might, prominence, positions of power. But the message of God to all of us here this morning, and really the message of Jesus at the heart of it, is the exact opposite. If you truly want to make a difference with your life, in this world. If you truly want to accomplish God's purposes and plans for your life, it will come not by seeking strength or might in this world, but by giving it up and humbly relying on him. This, of course, is very daunting and scary to put your life in the hands of God. Because our natural inclination is to take matters into our own hands and to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. But what God says here is that it's my spirit you must rely on. For it was God's spirit that worked in creation in the beginning. It was God's spirit that rescued his people as he opened up the Red Sea and closed it on Pharaoh and his armies. And it was God's spirit that brought dry bones to life in Ezekiel's vision, which foreshadowed what the Holy Spirit would do for us. He would bring life and light to people who are spiritually dead. So we must once more drive into our hearts and minds here this morning that God's Spirit is the crucial means by which his people would accomplish his purposes. Because of this, we must depend on the Spirit. And as we do, not even great obstacles can stand in our way. And I think this is what he's getting at then in verse 7. What are you, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring out the capstone accompanied by shouts of grace, grace to it. As God's people depended on his spirit, God would flatten, the, flatten these obstacles like mountains like a pancake. And so he would do the same with any obstacle that got in the way of what he wanted them to do. 
Now, for the Israelites, this primarily meant uh, the obstacles getting in the way of building the temple and being a holy people. So God assures Zerubbabel here that he would indeed see the completion of the temple. He would put that capstone on it to cap the completion of the work. God's spirit would empower them to this end. And so the people of God, when this happens, would shout grace, grace, when it happened. Because the completion of the temple would be a gracious, undeserved gift from him. It would come from his spirit empowerment to his people. So this message would have been incredibly encouraging to Zerubbabel and Israel because they indeed did face massive obstacles. They had enemies on all sides of them that hated them. They were dealing with an antagonistic government who was trying to interfere with God's work here. But nevertheless, God assures them that as they look to him, and as they depend on his spirit, he would remove these obstacles. And the same is also true for us here this morning. God is at work removing major obstacles for his people so that they too can build up the temple of God. Except instead of building up a physical temple, we are building up a spiritual temple with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. Even as Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 reminds us, so then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. And so as we see how God worked here in Zechariah for his people, so he is doing the same for us today. He is building each of us up to display his beautiful glories and power as the moving, living, breathing temple of God in this world. And when we gather together each and every Sunday, we have the great privilege of displaying his splendor and majesty in a uniquely powerful way as God's temple together. But not only is he building up his spiritual temple here today, but he is also creating us to be a holy people, just as he did with Israel. And in making us more holy, he often empties us of our own self-sufficiency. He empties us of our self-reliance. And this makes us more dependent on his spirit. Because the more dependent we become on him, the more he is glorified in us as we can't take the credit. So we learn day by day then what it means to be emptied of our self-reliance and our self-sufficiency and to become all the more dependent on him. So when you're dealing with a job that is difficult and joyless, when you're dealing with children that are just overwhelming and chaotic, when you're struggling with a relationship that just seems plain impossible, and when you're struggling to have the right attitude in the face of calamity, let these things 
empty you of you and let it instead drive you toward God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is able to help in your weakness. In these ways, then, we must depend on God's Spirit because as the church, this is how we will accomplish his purposes here on earth. So one of the main questions we have to ask then, if, if this is what we're supposed to do, depend on the Holy Spirit, great. How do we do that, right? How do we depend on the Holy Spirit, depend on God's Spirit to accomplish his purposes? Well, there are many different ways of doing this. I just want to give us two ways this morning. And they're not something complicated, but they are very basic. But basic truths are often what we need most. First, I want to encourage you to depend on the Holy Spirit by saturating your mind with God's word and truth day by day. Why do this? Because God's word is the fuel that the Holy Spirit sets ablaze in our heart. God's word is the sword of the Holy Spirit that he wields to kill sin and defend us against the lies of the enemy. God's word is what transforms us from the inside out. So if you want the Holy Spirit to be at work in your life, then saturate your, your life and your mind with God's life-giving word. Make war on the lies of the devil with the life-giving, peacemaking remedy of God's word. So if you are not doing this already, Make reading the Bible a crucial part of your daily life. And then enlist others in this as well. Ask one another regularly, even today, what are you reading in your Bible? Just assume that we're doing this. Encourage each other. Because often what we'll say is, you know, I didn't read anything today or yesterday or for the past few weeks. So ask one another. Involve each other as we read God's word together. Keep one another accountable. In this way, we can wield the life-giving weapon which cuts through death and brings life to his people today. Second, if we are to rely on the Spirit as we should, we must also be people of prayer. This, of course, is easier said than done. And because of this, I want to give us some practical suggestions so that we can grow in this crucial spiritual discipline. First, if you are an anxious person, if you are a person who often worries and has like a million things going through your brain all at once, which is all of us at times, I want to encourage you to leverage, leverage these strong emotions into an advantage every time it happens. When we feel these emotions that are, that are overwhelming, let it be a reminder of your desperate need to rely on God's spirit. Like a tire is low on air signal that we see in our car often in the winter, let these feelings of anxiety and worry be like that. Let it drive you to fill up your life with prayer and so depend on the Holy Spirit in this way. Let these feelings move you to pray about all things by bringing them into the presence of the Almighty God who loves you and cares for you. And so let that which seems to be a disadvantage in the moment be your advantage as you run to Christ. Second, 
I want to encourage all of us here this morning to pray briefly and frequently rather than long and rarely. Many in this room would consider themselves super busy. And of course, you just don't have time to pray. But never let busyness get in the way of your desperate need to pray. For prayer is one of the main ways we depend on God. And when we're not depending on God, we're depending on ourselves. And that is a train wreck waiting to happen. As Martin Luther once said, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. And so like Luther, see the importance of prayer and make it a priority throughout your day. Consider your drive to work, your walks, maybe, you know, a bus ride as opportunities to pray. And maybe pray even more than look at your social media account. Third, if you struggle about knowing what to pray, then I encourage you to pray God's word. Pray the Psalms by reading them and praying them back to God. Pray the Lord's prayers given to us by Jesus. Pray the prayers of Paul and his epistles and let the words of God in tandem with prayer be your strength. Finally, I want to encourage you to pray together in this church. Attend the quarterly prayer meetings that we have and pray with one another. Pray with one another in your home groups. And take advantage of the prayer time Sunday mornings from 8.20 to 8.40 each and every Sunday. Pray especially for your leaders and your pastors. We need it. Pray that we would know how to love you well. Pray that we would never bow the knee to cultural pressures, but would be empowered by God's spirit. Pray that our leadership would be a blessing and not a curse to you. And pray that our work would be a joy and advantage to you. And pray for us, especially when you sense our inadequacies. And I'm sure we've all recognized, but Aaron and I and Steve, we're not Jesus. We make mistakes. And when we do, pray for us all the more. So we as God's people then must be dependent on the Holy Spirit in at least these two ways. As we come back to verse 8, we then find the repeated statement that as Zerubbabel depends on God's spirit, he would certainly finish the temple. Nothing would get in his way. So because God is doing this work, he tells him to be careful not to despise the day of small beginnings. And in this context, what he's saying is, don't despise the small amount of work that's been done so far on the temple. Don't look on with cynicism that only a little work has been done on the temple so far. And as we again understand the background to this temple project, there were many who were incredulous, many who were just absolutely cynical. And while some responded with great joy and gladness, we read in Ezra 3 that there were also many who wept bitterly when they saw how tiny and puny this temple was compared to the one that Solomon had built. But God says here, don't look down on this small beginning. Why? Because that is not how God sees this situation at all. 
as our text tells us, these seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the ceremonial stone in Zerubbabel's hand. And the main idea here is that when God sees this temple project with its small beginning, he doesn't despise it. He already sees the end result. And so he rejoices in this moment. And what that means is that God's people should also rejoice. We should rejoice in the small beginnings. And so our call then is to remember that our God is a God who loves using small things and small beginnings to glorify himself in marvelous, spectacular ways beyond our imagination. And when we think of God using small things, we remember that he used a small shepherd boy and a sling with stones to defeat a giant. He used 12 uneducated disciples to spread the gospel. And when we think of small beginnings, we remember that God's kingdom begins as the smallest of seeds known that day, the mustard seed. But it will grow into a marvelous kingdom that will one day cover the entire earth. And perhaps most significantly, we need to remember that God's eternal plan of salvation for his people, the biggest of all of God's plans on earth, began with something small. It began with a baby in a manger surrounded by smelly animals and hay in a dark stable in the middle of poor Bethlehem. And it was this small baby that grew up and saved the entire world. So God calls his people then to not despise the day of small beginnings. For God is at work using small, insignificant beginnings to accomplish far greater things than we can imagine. Much like the snowball effect, where you push a snowball down a hill that quickly picks up steam and size, so the same is true with any small beginning for God's glory. And so because of this, we ourselves should find immense encouragement in small beginnings. And to also encourage one another in the small things that you see in their life. So in our children's progress, no matter how small it may be, we ought to encourage them whenever we see them take small steps of obedience and faith to God. And we should strive to do the same for our spouse or our friends whenever we see God's work in each other's life. We desire that our antennas be tuned not to each other's defects primarily or how someone doesn't measure up, but our antennas ought to be tuned to the work of the Holy Spirit in each other's life and then encourage one another in this work. For when God sees small beginnings for his glory, he rejoices. And so we ought to do the same in the work that he's doing. So may we not only depend on the Holy Spirit, uh, so may we depend only on the Holy Spirit who uses these things and builds it up for God's glory. For as Paul says in Galatians 6, 9, if we do not give up, we will reap at the proper time. This brings us then to the final part of the vision. Well, Zechariah now has the central meaning of it, 
he still has some questions left unanswered about it. The main question he left unanswered is that of the two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand. And Zechariah wants to know what the two olive trees represent, along with the two streams of gold oil and the two gold conduits. And so, as we started, so we end. He asked the angel, what in the world does this mean? Okay, I get that part, but what are these things? And the angel responds as he did the first time. Don't you know what these are? No, I don't. And then the angel plainly tells us that these two are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And that's how the vision ends. The vision ends with an obscure reference to two anointed ones by the sides of God. They don't have names. They're just the anointed ones. Who are they? Well, that is the subject of much debate with many different ideas across the board. And to be perfectly honest with you, I don't know. I don't know who they are. But I think we can certainly limit ourselves to at least two valid options. One good option is that these two anointed ones are Zechariah and Haggai. After all, these two prophets were the ones God used to speak the words of hope and life to his people at this time. This would also help explain why Zechariah was confused. It's like, it's about me? Is that, is that what you're saying? He, he had trouble understanding because it was about him. And so God is saying that he is using these spirit-empowered prophets to be the means which his spirit would flow through to his people. So this is one good option that's perfectly valid. The second option is that these two anointed ones are Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. And when we consider that these were the two main leaders targeted in the center of these visions, uh, that's often why commentators take it this way. He's talking about Joshua and Zerubbabel. And so if this is the case, then God is saying that he will use his divinely appointed priest, represented by Joshua, and the king, represented by Zerubbabel, to mediate his spirit to his people. So no matter what view you take here, that's not really important, what matters is that God will use these two, not as they depend on strength or might, but as they depend on his spirit working through them to God's people. But as we step back from this vision for a moment, we also see how this vision ultimately connects us and points us to Jesus and the example he set for us. For God would again, in a greater way, anoint not a fallible prophet like Zechariah or an imperfect fallen priest or king such as Joshua or Zerubbabel, but he would instead anoint a perfect prophet, priest, and king. He would anoint Jesus, the Messiah. And as we look at this vision, it would be through Jesus that we would be given the Holy Spirit. And it would be through Jesus that we would learn what it means to depend on the Holy Spirit for all things. Jesus would be the greatest, in the greatest of ways, show us what it means not to depend on strength or might, but on God's Spirit. For he would be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He would be baptized and anointed by the Spirit to proclaim good news and to set captives free. 
He would be led by the Spirit into the wilderness and face the lies and temptations of the devil. And he would be lifted up in crucifixion by the Spirit. But he would not remain dead, but be raised up by the power of the Holy Spirit. In every way then, Jesus would show us what it means again to not depend on strength or might, but on the Holy Spirit. So we, the church again, here this morning, must follow in the footsteps of Christ, which this vision ultimately points us toward. We must abandon the pursuit of a worldly strength and might that our world tempts us with day by day, and instead rely on the Holy Spirit, which Jesus himself has given to us. For this is the only way we will ever fulfill our purpose or calling in this life. So let's pray toward this end. Father, we come before you and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his finished work here on earth and that you, Jesus, have given us the Holy Spirit. You knew that we were inadequate of ourselves to accomplish your purposes here on earth. And so we thank you that you did not leave us on our own but that you have given us the Holy Spirit which empowers us to live holy lives for you and to build up the spiritual temple of God. So Lord, we ask that you would help us as the church to do this day in and day out. May we not get caught by the lies of the world which are always before us, but may we instead wholeheartedly rely on the Spirit given to us by Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.